Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Damian Walter. Damian's a writer and a storyteller. He's written for The Guardian, the BBC, Wired, Independent, Aeon, and others. And he teaches the rhetoric of story and writing the 21st century myth to over 35,000 students worldwide. And he's host of the quite interesting science fiction podcast. You can learn more about him at DamianGWalter.com, DamianGWalter at Medium. He has a Substack at Damien and the podcast Science Fiction by Damien Walter. Of course, all those links will be on the Jim Rutt Show episode page at (laughs) JimRuttShow.com. So welcome back. We tried to record this the other day and due to technical difficulties, it didn't work. So we're going to start from the top. One of the things I noticed when I looked at your website is that you pitched, I think it was your course. What happens when logos meets mythos, reason meets imagination, and science meets fiction? The first thought that leapt into my head was, what about pathos and ethos? You know, the old classic aspects of Greek story architecture. You know, one of my first loves in science fiction, Heinlein was really big on ethos. In fact, I'd argue in some sense, his whole set of works was about what is it to be a right person, right? And on the other hand, science fiction has often been criticized for being thin on pathos. So, Damien, take it away. Oh, thank you very much for having me on the podcast uh, on our second a- attempt here, Jim. I'm honored that you've woken up uh, so early uh, to have me back on the podcast. Yeah, I wanted to get back on because I did all my prep. And I, in my semi-senile state, the retention period isn't what it used to be. So I wanted to get it back as quickly as possible so I could remember who the hell it was I was talking to. <laughs> well, hopefully I remember what I'm doing. Yeah, that's, that's an, an interesting story. I mean, I'm a lifelong science fiction fan. Uh, I'm a a third-generation science fiction fan, actually. So my grandfather was into Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and had a a large collection of those books. I never got to meet him, unfortunately. Uh, And then my mum, so it it went through the the maternal line then to my mum, who was really big into, well, I guess, fantasy for for many people, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and also read like a lot of Arthur C. Clarke. So when I was about six or seven, I was already reading a lot of Arthur C. Clarke and and Tolkien and Lewis, and that has just became a, like a lifelong fascination with science fiction, which now at the age of forty-five has never really left me behind. And really, I'm a frustrated storyteller. I, I'm trying to write like my own. At some point, Lord of the Rings, uh, maybe. Uh, So through my life, I've tried to learn as much about story uh, and science fiction and fantasy and myth-making as well that's become over many different phases uh, of my life. And that led me, at one point, I wrote for for The Guardian for like six or seven years, a regular column on 
science fiction, more focused on books and got to know lots and lots of people in the science fiction writing world and community. Uh, I actually, I studied in America for uh, six weeks on the Clarion Writers Workshop uh, where I got to meet uh, lots of cool people. And then, but I kind of took a little break from science fiction and was doing other things. And then during COVID, I, um, one of the things I do is curate online courses. The first of those was the rhetoric of story, which actually has over 50,000 students worldwide now on online platforms, which is really cool. And then, yeah, during the COVID lockdown, I, I came back to thinking a lot about science fiction. I reread stuff that I was catching up with and started putting together basically my second big course, which is called Writing the 21st Century Myth. And the thesis of the course is about how science fiction is modern myth-making. And I wanted to talk to a range of people, so I arranged an interview. I was very lucky. I caught John Viveki, who I know you know very well. He's a regular guest on your podcast. And he agreed to do an interview with me. He's actually a science fiction and a Star Trek fan. We just recently... This week, in fact, done another chat together about Star Trek. So that will be coming out at some point. But in that conversation about science fiction, we went through loads and loads of things. But at one point, we were talking about science fiction and what these two words mean. And that I was interested that they had kind of opposite meanings. And John talked about them as a symbol on uh, that in this collision of opposite meanings is, is like quite a potent symbol on the one hand science our way of determining what is true and real and on the other hand fiction um, which is untrue and unreal but it might have uh, deeper truths that are revealed in it so as i was building up my course this became the science fiction podcast i started putting some of the lectures on there and the youtube videos i was making and i was quite surprised that this built up quite an audience actually. So we've been in the top 10 of the podcast charts in about 70 different countries now, which is cool. So then I actually started running it properly as a podcast and trying to link together all of these ideas about reality and fantasy and mythos and logos, which is maybe the root of these ideas or logos and, and mythos, these ancient or well, classical Greek terms for on one hand the logos which is all your kind of logic and reasoning and the mythos which is all the stories of your of your culture and of course greek culture has this amazing mythos which has still come down to us today so that's that's the root of that and a bit of a way into my interest in i guess how science fiction is making modern myths for us today so i hope that answers your question jim well, you didn't say why you didn't put some emphasis also on pathos and ethos. <laughs> well, they do come in. They do come in. There's a strong link between mythos and pathos. Pathos. In the one gives you, your mythos gives you your, your kind of heightened stories of what humans may be able to achieve, our, our heroic side. But in storytelling terms, the pathos is the reality of life, the grittiness of existence. And historically, we haven't done a lot of, well, maybe we haven't recorded a lot of the, the pathos of our storytelling. It tends to be the mythic stories that survive uh, through history. But you get that divide today between like literary fiction, which 
is apparently looking at the pathos of life, although I think there are elements of, of the constructed and the fantasy in there as well. And on the other hand, what's often kind of dismissed as genre fiction, where a lot of science fiction uh, and fantasy and horror and so on sit. In terms of the ethos, I mean, I think about that a lot on the rhetoric of story. That's kind of a major element of thinking about storytelling. But I haven't really thought about it in relation to science fiction or whether science fiction is where we often turn to for our exemplars of how to live. Of course, in a heroic sense. But I guess we do get the figure of like the scientist billionaire industrialist from there. Elon Musk has very successfully like embodied in our culture, or the scientist who manages to put together a time machine in their basement and go traveling through history. And I think that might be a, an archetype that we've drawn from science fiction. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Jim? I think there's lots of interesting ethos in science fiction, but not in all of science fiction. As I mentioned, I always thought Heinlein was great. You know, Farnham's freehold, you know, okay, the libertarian dude, but who's loyal to the death, right? And perhaps my favorite character in all of Heinlein, Jubal Harshaw, the lawyer in Stranger in a Strange Land. I suppose if I have any fictional characters I based myself on, it would be a cross between Jubal Harshaw and Gandalf. No, actually not Gandalf, Tom Bombadil, even better, right? And I got a friend who actually sort of models himself on Michael Valentine Smith, the Martian in Stranger in a Strange Land. So there is that, that, you know, how to live. And I think that's actually always one of the reasons we read fiction is to get some insight into how other people think that right living might be. And, of course, some of it's just pure entertainment, you know, genre fiction, the thriller type stuff, the pure mechanical crank them out. And there's a lot of science fiction that's like that, too. But, you know, science fiction at its greatest, I think, often does include ethos, though it does tend to be thin on pathos. You know, you know I do read a lot of literary fiction, and it is too much pathos in my book, right? It's like, all right, whiny fuckers, shut the fuck up and go do something, right? <laughs> Yeah, if it doesn't leave you feeling chronically depressed, it's not great literature. Yeah, exactly. I'm a, like a total optimist, you know, and it's totally not that way. But I nonetheless enjoy reading as an insight to how other people think. So anyway, I think that's interesting. So let's move on a little bit. Let's start out with one of the classic science fiction arguments. Are you a Star Trek or a Star Wars guy? If you have to pick one. I'm more a Star Trek guy. I mean, Star Wars had... I was the first time I saw Star Wars was very early in the VHS video machine days. And I was so obsessed with it that my, my mother actually had to borrow the video machine from the family who had it. So we could take that home and I could watch it like six times in a row. But it didn't last for me as something I was really interested in. I've, I've watched like all of the movies, I guess. And I think the recent Andor show is really good. But I'm much more a Star Trek person, especially Next Generation. Next Generation, Deep Space Nine are my two big Star Trek obsessions. And I would watch them obsessively when I was in my late teens and early 20s because they're such a, a beautiful vision of humanity as at our most like orderly and logical uh, and positive and progressive as a species. Uh, unless you go to the, the mirror dimension, 
which I think is always a kind of in-joke for the people making Trek, especially the actors, that they have a feeling that this is a bit more what the characters would actually be like if they had more pathos to them. Spock with pathos? There's an interesting concept. Right? Of course, the old argument would be that he was riddled with emotions but just couldn't let it out because of his raising. Yeah, I would also come down on the side of Star Trek. However, I would also say that I remember watching the original Star Trek show when it came out, and it was like very riveting, even though later when you go back and look at those things, the production values are so low, it's so cheesy, it's hilarious. But at the time, it was like so much better and more interesting and deep than any other network TV show, at least in the United States. But I have never watched other than maybe one episode each of, of some of the follow-on series, you know, the Next Generation or Deep Space Nine or was it Battlestar Galactica? Was that part of Star Trek? No, I think that was like a, a ripoff of, of Star Trek. But anyway, I'm kind of anchored on the original. I have watched, I think, all the movies, and I have always enjoyed those. But yes, I also come down as a Star Trek guy. I did watch Star Wars, including the night it came out. A buddy of mine at the time, we were pseudo-cinephiles. We had this theory that if you didn't watch it the first night, the film had been degraded by running through the machine. We were, you know idiots but so we went and saw it the first night waited in line long line all that stuff and i still have the same simple critique of star wars as a good american gun nut you know i do a lot of shooting i've been involved with gun sports and things of that sort the damn troopers in star wars are the worst shots imaginable i would love to go through and count how many shots they shoot that don't hit anything that just seems to be like a cheap storytelling technique that they use throughout that whole series. So all these bullets flying, nobody ever gets hit by the troopers. You know, the Empire stormtroopers are the worst shots in all of cinema. And as a gun person, I just find that an objectionable cheat. <laughs> you have to accept Star Wars as what it is. There's a great story that Mark, Mark Hamill tells uh, where he says that he was pointing out to Harrison Ford, who's like, after the trash compactor scene, he said, look, we're all dry now. Shouldn't we still be wet? And Harrison Ford just turns to him and says, it ain't that kind of film, kid. Star Wars just isn't. It's mythic, heroic storytelling in space. But I accept it as science fiction. And I've been arguing about that this week with the members of my science fiction community on Facebook. Uh, we have 26 thousand members on there and it's very active as well so we have arguments that go on for days and days and days and we've been talking about whether star wars is actually science fiction or not that's a damn interesting question because you think about it it does have you know the force and kind of that yoda and kind of the woo-ish stuff to it so does that push it over the line into fantasy or not of course the, you know, to my mind that line between fantasy and science fiction you know, there really isn't a crisp line in my book. So if you had a, you know, big old map, I'll just make up an answer here. What the hell, right? It's science fiction near the boundary with fantasy and maybe a little overlap, something like that. Yeah. Well, science fiction fans tend to be obsessive categorizers, which is why there's so many different subgenres of science fiction as well. So I think that the science fiction fantasy divide is kind of an artificial categorization. I think they're the same thing that manifests in, in, in different ways. They're both kind of big mythic storytelling. And then what happened in the science fiction world was that because there were these two categories that lots of things fell between, 
There's also a, a, a subgenre of science fantasy, which many people categorize Star Wars as. But for me, the label science fantasy doesn't really make any sense because I think if you were going to change a word, it would be the science bit. And maybe you would call it fantasy fiction instead. But I do have some reasoning for why I think Star Wars is science fiction. I think it's all about how far you extend science, really. There's that famous line from Arthur C. Clarke where um, he says any sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic. If you backwards engineer that idea, wherever we push our technology to, it's going to end up looking kind of magical to us because we always use our technology to fulfill our, like our will in the world, our ability to do things. So if you extend that either a thousand years in the future or to a galaxy far, far away, uh, you can have a technological explanation for everything in Star Trek, including the Force, if you want one. And a lot of the ideas come from other science fiction. A lot of them come from Isaac Asimov, actually, like the hyperdrive. That's something that Asimov explored first, the idea of hyperspace as a, a means of, of traveling between star systems, which for me is one of the more realistic, actually, forms of of interstellar travel for something that that may never be possible for us. Yeah, and of course, that's one of the interesting things about science fiction. You make a couple of these key extrapolations, either reasonable or not, and then you base a whole world upon that. It's funny, I was a hardcore nonfiction reader. I started reading science books when I was five, and I was fortunately tall. When you went to the library during class, when you were in first grade, they made you get books from the kids' shelf, you know, stupid-ass Dr. Seuss books and shit like that. I had no interest in those, but I discovered by accident, if you stopped by the library after school on the way to the school bus, particularly if you're tall, they didn't know who the hell you were. They didn't care what book you took out. So I started taking out science books, and that's all I read. Science books, a little bit of history. And then fortunately, I had a pretty wise third-grade teacher who actually took me personally to the school library and handed me a book by someone named Andre Norton and said, you might like this. And I read it, and I go, mm, that's kind of cool. I read, I read a bunch of her stuff, and then I got into Heinland and a few others. And then I, then the gateway, I made the giant mistake of reading the Foundation trilogy when I was 10. And I've found a lot of people who, for whatever reason, did that. And I think you mentioned the idea of psychohistory is a dangerously bad idea. And I think it took me years to be deprogrammed from the concept that, you know, with enough knowledge, we could predict the future 10,000 years in the future or something. And it's funny, I am now, of course, a complexity science guy. I've been affiliated with the Santa Fe Institute for 20 years. And one of the main holdings of complexity science is we don't know shit about the future. That the unfolding of high-dimensional complex systems, particularly agentic ones, i.e. ones with animals in them that could, can have agency, is so unpredictable that you shouldn't even try to think you could model out a complex system in any detail very far off. And so, in fact, at Stanford Institute, it's somewhat of an insult to call somebody Harry Seldon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Asimov would appreciate that. Uh, I think psychohistory is an idea that he came up with when he was very young. And he ended up in the science fiction world, and he met up with John W. Campbell, the great science fiction editor, and Campbell was, was trying to change science fiction, which in American magazine publishing was super pulpy. 
and had a very low reputation. And he is really the editor that gives the idea of science fiction having some real grounding in science, as opposed to just being fantasy like Buck Rogers, perhaps. So he's trying to find writers to do that. And Asimov has a pitch meeting with him, basically. And Asimov has been reading, oh, I forget the name, Edward Gibbon, The, the Rise and Fall of the, the Roman Empire, which is this really foundational history for the liberal conception of of history basically that history progresses over time and gibbon had extrapolated this from the the history of the roman empire into modernity so foundation draws on all of that so very loosely the foundation is kind of the americas and the colonies and the empire that's collapsing is the british empire or you could cast it as the roman empire as well but it's all about like the evolution of civilizations. So he has to put something at the heart of this. So he has the idea of psychohistory, which I think is a brilliant idea to have when you're 22 or something that he had it. But in the later books, he starts taking it apart and showing how the history can't really be uh, guided this way because I think he's done much more, much more thinking about politics and geopolitics and so on at that point. Did you read the later books, Jim? What do you mean the later books? Well, he, he wrote the original trilogy, and then there are later Foundation books. I'm not sure when the fourth one is, but then the, the fifth one is like the late 1980s, and it was actually Asimov's big bestseller at the time. I did not. I read a fair bit of Asimov, but I eventually got tired of his fairly pedestrian writing style. Though I did one time, you know, this is an interesting science fiction, weird little autobiographical fact. Totally forgot about this. I read Asimov's famous story, The Last Question, and I was so taken by it, I read it over the phone to my high school girlfriend. The whole thing. How did that go? She loved it. Okay. She was a nerd girl, so uh, what the hell, right? <laughs> As a teenager, I was very into the into June and the Dune movie, David Lynch's Dune movie. And I probably showed it to like two or three girlfriends who all broke up with me soon afterwards. And so I twigged, that's why it was, I think. Interesting, interesting. Let's move on to another near topic. I noticed on your podcast, was it your podcast or was it on your Guardian? I don't remember because I did a little float around, that you wrote something, The Truth of Myth, J.R.R. Tolkien and the Return of the Mythos. Tolkien is one of my favorites. I have read Lord of the Rings 34 times, including about six months ago. Every year or two, I go back and dig into it. And, you know, it is, to my mind, just the best example so far of somebody creating a really, really interesting, complicated world that has all those elements of logos, mythos, pathos, and ethos. Yeah, I mean, the, the Lord of the Rings, so that, that's actually the last part of my course. Uh, it's the ninth lecture because I have this ongoing back and forth in the course writing the 21st century myth about what the, what the value of myth is because you can think of myth as fantasy. So humans have just been inventing fantasies for thousands of years that make us feel better about the world, fantasies of gods and heroes, and we can tell these stories and uh, really, really enjoy them. They make us feel better about our place in the world. 
Um, but we don't have to imbue them with with any more meaning than that. But then, of course, like myths are the foundation of all our great religions. So we do have real belief in them as well. So the the eighth talk is about fantasy and what we do with fantasy storytelling. And then the ninth one, I, I turn that the other way and ask, when we tell mythic stories, do they communicate some real picture of the world beyond our ability to understand it? And I think I'm not a full Tolkien scholar, so more knowledgeable Tolkien scholars might correct me or argue with me. But I think Tolkien saw myth that way. I think he saw it as a picture of the truest reality in the way that many very religious people do. And Tolkien was a, a pretty devout Catholic, as was Lewis as well, his great friend. And I think the two of them together with their compatriot, whose name has fallen out of my head, and he was a, quite a famous uh, British philosopher and also a, a theosophist who had very deep spiritual beliefs about the nature of myth. And both Lewis and Tolkien were in a kind of uh, a trio. Uh, they were all members of the Inklings together. And I think from that, Lewis and Tolkien went in different directions. So Lewis very kind of literally represented the Christian mythos in um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the Land of Narnia through to killing his messianic character, Aslan. But I think for a lot of people that when I discovered when I was about 12, and I was already at the time very atheist, very anti-God, and when I discovered it was a Christian allegory, I was very angry with Lewis, actually, genuinely quite angry. But Tolkien goes another way. He, he's not writing allegorically. He's very keen to make that point to people who talk to him about Lord of the Rings. He is trying to do what he talks about as mythopoeia, which is the art of creating a, a new mythos for the modern world by bringing back and synthesizing lots of the Northern European myths, which it's true had been somewhat forgotten from the culture. Tolkien was also involved in bringing back Beowulf, translating Beowulf and bringing it more back into popular circulation. So in Lord of the Rings, he's, he's doing that, that act of myth appear, that act of bringing back a myth. And if you look at the, the cultural impact of Lord of the Rings from the 1960s onwards, when it really starts to escape into mass culture, not just directly, but the extent to which it's been imitated. If you play a video game, now half of them are set in a Tolkien-esque fantasy land that probably wouldn't be being used now if not for Tolkien. Yeah, and certainly Dungeons and Dragons and everything that came from that was a complete ripoff of Tolkien. <laughs> there, are, there are other people as well, like Jack Vance is, is a big influence on Dungeons and Dragons, but Tolkien is really the main figure of bringing Middle-earth into our reality as a place. And I speculate in that, that ninth talk about the extent to which we might be living in Middle-earth in the near future as we, we've got our Apple headsets on now uh, and we can immerse ourselves in these in these worlds that we're building i think of them as the unreal that we're bringing into reality and i think middle earth might become a pseudo real place to us that we spend a lot of time walking around and, and meeting tom bombadil perhaps when he when he shows up that would be quite interesting yeah i think i read 
started reading the trilogy in 1967. Me and my best friend were reading it sort of side by side and just talking about it constantly. And then, interestingly, that same girl that I read the last question to over the phone a few years later, she wanted to know about the, my obsession of Lord of the Rings. And we were out walking around late at night in the summertime, and we sat under a bush on the edge of the woods, and she wanted me to tell her the story of the Lord of the Rings. And I said, how much time you got? And she said, as much as it takes. And by the time I'd probably read it eight or nine times, I was reading it every three months at that point. So I went to excruciating detail. Hilariously, about midnight, I had gotten the band to Rivendell, and we both fell asleep. <laughs> and we didn't wake up till the sun came up. And so we had some explaining to do when we got home. And amazingly, my parents actually believed the true story that I told them. I guess they knew me well enough to know. Her parents were somewhat skeptical, but they were on the much more liberal side than my parents, so she didn't get in any trouble. <laughs> One of those times when you're always tempted to make up a lie because the truth is so, so unbelievable. But it was absolutely true. And, you know, it took me almost three hours to get the hobbits to Rivendell, and then we fell asleep. <laughs> But to the moral question of Lord of the Rings, I love the way you distinguished between Lewis and his heavy Catholic allegory and Tolkien, who, if anything, was an even more fanatic Catholic. But Lord of the Rings, or his whole Middle Earth, is not that at all. It's a parallel creation. One of the reasons I believe that's so important, perhaps what drew me to it, is I became a militant atheist after being raised a Catholic at the age of 11. And so I always recoil from anything that's obviously Christian allegory, goddammit, right? If you're going to tell me fairy stories, label them appropriately. But Lord of the Rings, I read accurately, I think. When I learned more about Tolkien, I realized I intuited his non-allegorical nature. Of course, he says so right in the foreword, though, of course, we know authors often lie about their motives, but that's another story for another day. And my own take on it is that it is a completely alternative metaphysics, right? Ilyuvutar creates the universe in the beginning, the one and all that's okay. That's a little bit like old Yahweh pulling a rabbit out of his hat. But after that, the metaphysics is far more complicated and very different. But in this very different metaphysical universe, right and wrong still shine through. You know, the difference between Aragon and Boromir, or between Gandalf and Saruman, or between Gollum and Frodo, right? I mean, it's an extraordinarily moral work. And so as a militant atheist, I take away from that, you don't need no stinking Yahweh to have morality, right? You can have good and evil and good people, and we can know the difference without having to appeal to some musty old book written in the desert 3,000 years ago. And I think it's one of the reasons I've been such a partisan of his work, despite the fact that he was a fanatic Catholic, because he showed that you didn't need Yahwehism to have morality. Hmm. Well, I would actually categorize Tolkien rather than with most other fantasy writers, which are kind of generic, often copies of Tolkien. Uh, uh, people like the World War I war poets, uh, like Siegfried Sassoon and a number of others, Wilfred Owen, because the First World War experience clearly shaped a lot of like the sense of loss and grief that's at the heart of Lord of the Rings, the scarring of the landscape, which are also Tolkien's experiences of industrialization and his sense of what good and evil are. Um, and I think the person he really shared that sensibility with actually is George Orwell. So I sometimes call Lord of the Rings 
1984 plus hobbits because they they have a lot of the same symbols so in in 1984 big brother is an eye that is watching you you never meet big brother and sauron is a burning eye uh who is watching you and you you never see him within the context of the story and they're both totalitarian powers as well over the world and you could think of 1984 is kind of a world in which Sauron won, where the totalitarian power has bent everybody else to their will. And like the way that Sauron corrupts the, the kings of man, the nine kings who become the Nazgul. So us, of course, the very different stories in many ways. I think their conception of what evil is uh, and how power exerts evil in the world are very very closely related and there are people of very very similar generations kind of cultural backgrounds as well that's interesting i have to think about that some i haven't reread 1984 since 1984 when i sat down to read it a second time so maybe it's due for a third reading i mean there's certain aspects of our world today that makes you kind of want to revisit that but let's move on one of the things that you have said is that, you know, as the world moves towards more automation, and we'll, we'll soon, I think, get to AI, you say only a creator culture can save us. What did you mean when you said that? Yeah, I had been doing early in my, my career. I, I went to university in Leicester, which is a great city in the UK, but a very poor city for Britain. It's the or was at the time the poorest city in Britain, big immigrant communities. Uh, and I ended up basically as a community worker in Leicester, because whilst I was studying there, I started teaching writing workshops in libraries. And very nicely, the local council basically created a job for me to do that, which I stayed and did for about six, six seven years in Leicester, working with lots of people who are really isolated and cut off and on the edges of society, working with them to kind of like rebuild identity. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was very young at the time, um, but it was a very formative experience. And one of the things I came to when I finished that work, I wrote this essay for Eon magazine that what I had observed is that as people created things, it wasn't about becoming famous, although those kind of drives always come up when people explore their creativity. But as you create something like, if you get to the point where you can write a book or, or make, make a painting, something about you actually changes. So we, we make ourselves through creation. And I was studying a lot of Carl Jung at the time, who had been through this process. He did a famous period of his life where he gave up his professional uh, psychiatric practice, retreated to his kind of tower on the banks of Lake Geneva and plunged into his imagination and wrote, all of the stuff that would become his, his later theories, which are his most, most famous work. And from that, I was trying to extrapolate as well, like a political idea about what kind of direction do we need in the world. So that essay proposes that uh, instead of being all about consuming, we need to try and empower people to be creators, not to be famous, not so everyone is pursuing internet stardom or to be an Instagram influencer, which is what creativity has kind of become about around us, but so that people have that growth and fulfillment. And stuff I would probably add to that now is that if we look at 
like our existential problems facing us uh, now. Even something like very serious, like the fact that the technology is out there to make chemical weapons in your basement or biological weapons that we can't authoritarianly push down on that. We need a culture of people who have more and more of the intelligence and wisdom together, that thing John Viveki talks about, so that that kind of threat hits a big mesh of creative, super intelligent humans. Yeah, that's the hope. I mean, that, and this is an interesting knife's edge, you know, just as Gandalf talks about the quest being on the knife's edge of success or failure. I think the human race is on the knife's edge of success or failure. We have the Game B movement, the whole theory on what we need to build on the other side of this. But it's a very hard road to get from here to there. And, you know, I do think creative culture is certainly part of that because certainly if we had the will to not be caught in more, more, more consumptive patterns of life, we are already within striking distance of being able to provide a decent standard of living to every human on earth. And I've done some calculations and just using as, as a crude surrogate, energy consumption per capita, while not fully inclusive of all the harm we're doing to the ecosystem and to each other and to our psyche, does at least a very rough cut on standard of living and our impact on the ecosystem. And by my calculations, by 2080, we could be producing about 4,000 watts per person for the whole earth in a carbon neutral or very close to carbon neutral fashion. And you say, well, what's 4,000 watts mean? I'll give you a sense. United States, Australia, and Canada, the big offenders, are all around 11 to 12,000 watts, about three times that level. Sub-Saharan Africa, Bangladesh, Nepal, Myanmar, they're under 500, right? So they're a 20th of the energetic intensity of the United States, Canada, and Australia. Western Europe and Japan, about 8,000. An interesting example for me is Portugal, about 4,000. And Portugal is not a flagrantly rich country, but it's not a depressingly poor country either. People live quite well in Portugal. They haven't used advanced technologies to minimize their energy consumption or anything else. So if everybody on Earth, all 8 billion, by then 9 billion people, 10 billion people, could converge to a world of around 4,000 watts intensity, we could all live like the Portuguese, right? And by that point, much of the actual production and work will be automated. You know, the book, Fully Automated Luxury Communism, is really not that far outside of our grasp of humanity so long as we can get off this more, more, more shiny stuff treadmill. And of course, the problem is, what's the alternative, right? Well, if you look back at 95% of human history, the forager epoch, people didn't have possessions because you were moving all the time. The most possession you'd have would be a knife, a spear, and maybe your favorite woven basket with a pot in it. Probably not even a pot. That came later. So it is possible for humans to live without the love of stacking up shiny objects and taking jet trips so they can take selfies on the edge of a cliff or some crazy ass shit like that. And it may be that the creator culture might be that alternative. And certainly it is for, it can be for numerous people, but we don't know how many. Any thoughts on your side on, you know, if you took 100 people, how many of them would actually find fulfillment in creation? Yeah, I, I had a friend who read that essay at the time that I wrote it, and he was a very blunt-spoken Scottishman, and he said to me, but Damien, what about the dimbos? Which was his way of saying 
You know, all of those people who are just going out and consuming because they can't uh, find anything else to do. So my optimistic idea is that, and this is genuine observation, that when people find something creative in a very broad sense that engages them, they really begin more and more to opt out of consumption because that thing is channeling all of their attention. Uh, I observed this a lot on the internet, especially at, at the time when kind of older people were joining the internet who were really deep into consumption. But when they found like the sports community that they are into and they got some status in that community, so that was a little bit creative for them, they'd be much less interested in whatever consumptive patterns they had. You have a, a big trend in the UK of young people not drinking or going out to pubs. Yeah, who the hell would have thought that? You know, the, the damn Brit who are the worst sots on earth pretty much, right? But now it's a trend amongst the young people to be dry. It's because young people have other things to do. They've grown up playing Minecraft online. And of course, a lot of them are just doing those negative things online, which I won't list at the moment. But a lot of it is very positive and creative. They have massive friend groups, massive collaborative projects. They're involved with huge games. You know, it might be a pseudo form of creativity at that stage, but it's still the experience of creativity. So I, I think we're probably going in this direction, and I think humans naturally are creators. But we've had a solid 300 years of industrial culture where everybody need to be trained to just conform to a system. But now those systems are quickly falling apart and AI is probably going to smash them apart. I think AI, my current take on it, because who really knows how it's going to evolve, is that it will empower creativity rather than doing the creativity. I think there's great use it. I know that you're working with, um, you've been doing script writing, can you actually auto-generate an entire script? Yeah, though this is interesting, and I've got now got a small group of collaborators, including a couple of people from Hollywood and a semi-pro scriptwriter. In fact, it was he and I came up with this idea together. And what the main focus, you're absolutely right, is an intimately interwoven with a person in a whole lots and lots of intricate steps to be able to create a full script, but with the writer or the human in the loop in many, many places. However, I also found that you can go from what's called the movie hint, which could be as little as three sentences, to a full script with the press of a button. It's not the greatest script in the world, but people looked at it and say, not terrible, right? But I will say, if you're going to get a really good script, you got to have the human in the loop in multiple places. But the AI takes care of a tremendous amount of the hard work. And it also, and this is, I think, where this is potentially a bigger potential product than one might think. There are many people who are creative in the space of ideas and understand what an interesting character is and an interesting plot, but they are not fluid with written words. They're not writers, but they're thinkers and they're storytellers in the oral tradition. You know, think about our forager, 95% of our history, the shaman who or the storyteller around the campfire wasn't somebody who had done enough writing to have a very nice writing style. They had a different way of crafting story. And so my thought is that things like my script helper program and similar things, which are coming for other genres, will open the door for creativity 
to people who have ideas and deep felt sense of right and wrong and what character ought to be and maybe understand folk psychology, but don't have the technical skills to write beautiful prose or even to structure complicated prose. And, and if you combine script helper with what's coming soon, which is text to video, people will actually be able to create actual video artifacts from a relatively small amount of written words and iterative interaction with tools like Script Helper. And I think that'd be quite interesting. In fact, yesterday I did a podcast with Rob Tursick, a Hollywood guy, and his prediction is that Hollywood is doomed and doesn't know it because the world is about to be overwhelmed with vast quantities of non-copyrighted but pretty good material. And of course, like, you know, Sturgeon's Law, 90% of everything is shit. But if there's a million custom-made movies created, 100,000 of them aren't shit. And maybe 10,000 of them are actually good. And you consider that Hollywood puts out three or 400 movies a year. If there's 10,000 pretty good ones that come from the commons, shall we say, and are not copyrighted, they're in the commons, will there be any room left for Hollywood, or will most people, you know, find something in this 10,000 good ones out of the million that are created, and 95% of their video consumption will be there from a commons, and as you say, not for people trying to be rich, but rather for people who won't have a story to tell and hope that somebody will pick it up, but they don't even get any remuneration for it, or very modest remuneration, but for the joy of the act of creation. That would be a very interesting and different world than this world where the video that we consume is created in part to program us to stay within the culture of consumption and material status. There will always be status games in society. We are chimpanzees and bonobos who wear clothes, so we will always be playing status games, but they don't have to be about shiny objects and stacking up money. You can have a status game of who's the best storyteller, who's got the deepest spirituality, who can make a fire by rubbing two sticks together, who's good with archery. There's many, 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 many dimensions of status competition, which we have foolishly allowed to be collapsed to basically two, which are money and beauty, right? That collapse to those two things is, to my mind, fairly close to what is driving our society over the cliff. And I'm with you that I think that a creator culture is at least a piece of finding our way across this knife's edge to the other side. Going down that that optimistic route, like I think Hollywood, uh, not because there's two things happening in Hollywood. There's some really brilliant creators who I greatly admire, and then there's a whole industry that is built around them. And the industry, I think everybody is sick of at this point. So I talk quite a lot on the science fiction podcast about the corporate entertainment franchise, which is what sadly has happened to things like Star Wars and Star Trek and criminally like Lord of the Rings, is that they're treated by these big corporate entities as something that they can buy and sell like a chain of coffee shops uh, or fast food uh, so it is literally a franchise of that kind. And their only interest, of course, is in building up the value of the franchise. I was so pissed off by the newest Lord of the Rings series that was put out. It was like the worst piece of shit imaginable. The first episode was like, oh, my God, maybe it'll get better. Maybe it was the pilot. And it got worse. It violated all the ethos of Tolkien. It was like 
what the fuck? How could this be considered to be part of the Middle Earth thing? And I have, even though I am the most fanatic Tolkienian most people I know know, I have said I am not going to watch season two of the goddamn thing when it comes out. I've even watched all the goddamn Hobbit movies, which aren't that good, but they're at least good enough and they don't violate the ethos of the world. There's some good moments. Bilbo and Gollum is, is pretty great in the Hobbit movies. And I think the edit that just makes it one movie is pretty good, actually. Yeah, that would be worthwhile. Cook it all down to about three hours instead of taking what should have been one three-hour movie and turning it into three, what, two-and-a-half-hour movies. But anyway, yeah, the turning these things into literal commodities. And think about what happens in a late-stage, financialized, capitalist economy is the only value anything has. It's ability to squeeze money-on-money money return out of it. No other value is allowed to survive under the pressure of that machine. And to desecrate these great works of art that way is just horrifying. I think they're going to lose, though, to exactly the things we're talking about here. So do you know Games Workshop? It's very UK-centric, Warhammer 40,000. So uh, it's a big tabletop gaming set 40,000 years in the future. I know about the game, yeah, because we have a little nerd store about two blocks down for where our in-town pediatrician is. That's all they do is Warhammer or whatever it is, 40,000 or something. And they have all the stuff they're selling. They got tables set up with, you know, hairy and dirty nerds crouched around them, you know, 12 hours a day. It's pretty crazy. Is it worth looking into? Is it good? Well, what's happened is that uh, the fans are much more creative about Warhammer than Games Workshop. Is. So they 3D print their own miniatures from uh, patterns which are shared in the fandom uh, and things like Unreal Engine. So if you look on YouTube, there's all kinds of Warhammer animated movies from non-Games Workshop people. Uh, and really, when you think about it, the fans really own the franchise, but legally it's still owned by Games Workshop and they will chase people down uh, from making these movies sometimes. Uh, but I think Hollywood is just going to lose this, this battle, especially with things like AI, because I don't think it's going to be really about making a 90-minute movie or a three-hour movie. We're moving into uh, a video game virtual world reality. But those games won't for a very long time be self-generating. They're going to be massive creations of huge collaborative groups of people. So a major form of storytelling, uh, and already is in things like Minecraft, but this will become very common, is your level in a game, the adventure that you've designed and the NPCs that people meet. Uh, and because of the bulk, that that will be something that AI will contribute to helping people uh, write. And a lot of it, of course, will be trash via Sturgeon's Law and people won't go to those parts of the game. But some of it will be brilliant and millions of people will go on those quests and follow those stories and those level designs. And I think what people really want is to have the freedom to do that if that's their form of creativity in the world once they find it rather than having to turn up for whatever kind of meaningless cubicle job they're doing, which is probably just contributing to one of these corporate structures, and feel frustrated that they can't just put their time into making these worlds. Or I don't think it's just going to be games either. I think we're going to have huge collaborative science projects, a bit like the SETI project where people were processing star data on their computer 
for all kinds of things, you know, where we're processing massive amounts of data to make huge di discoveries as well. Uh, and that's what humans should be doing. Normert Wiener's famous book, The Humane Use of Human Beings, right? You know, he was an early father and writer about cybernetics. And he saw it back in the early 50s that the potential was there, but I think he didn't understand. And you know, I think John Maynard Keynes famously said in the 30s that by the 60s, we'll be down to working 15 hours a week due to the fruits of automation. And what neither of them could see was the ability of the money-on-money -money machine to hijack our brains and program us to think in terms of our status, in terms of our possessions or our positional goods. Or the beauty game. You know, the beauty game, I really feel sorry for the teenage girls now who are caught in this absurd beauty loop on Instagram with the arms race of these artificial beautifiers. And think about how weird that would be if you've highly identified yourself with your Instagram presentation yourself that's highly manipulated by beautifying filters. And then you look in the mirror in the morning. What does that do to you? And so no wonder there's a skyrocketing epidemic of mental health amongst teenage females, at least in the Anglosphere. I don't know why it's worse in the Anglosphere than elsewhere, but it seems to be. And again, this is not a good and healthy thing. But if you are a advertising-supported vehicle that wants to have you on the system as long as possible, rather than for you to get the maximized benefit for what you're paying for then that's what you'll end up with. Money on money return will say, let us build a culture and a cult of teenage girls obsessing over their beauty, getting into an arms race with beauty filters, and then feeling horrible about themselves when they look in the mirror. I mean, that's the fucked up result of the system we have today. Yeah. An aspect of creativity is that to get to a point where you can fulfill yourself creatively, it usually means unpicking lots of addictions which I don't mean in like the chemical addiction sense, although that's often part of it as well, but any kind of addictive behavior in your life. So for lots of young men at the moment, the two main things between them and their potential in life are addictive video games and pornography online, which are both media phenomenon, basically. And these are incredibly powerful, like the tools of gamification that are deployed in video games. Uh, I'm, I'm going to do a big video essay on this for people because I don't think especially the young men who are caught in these traps understand what the games are doing at all. How uh, like gamified, e even like the application of meaning so you can give people the fake sense of meaning and achievement in a game to keep them coming back to the game over and over again. And it's not like the days where like there was a small subset of young men when I was a kid who would play like fruit machines, gambling machines in pubs. This is much more powerful than that. And it can get almost anyone who falls into these traps online. And these are all the same tools of, of creativity. The, the things that you might use to create great art can also be used to create these addictive loops that you keep people in for your profit. Yeah, money on money return by hijacking people's dopamine signals. One of the worst things I ever heard in my life was from one of the big wheels in Silicon Valley. I always call it Silicon Valley intentionally, just to show how fake it all is, right? To give the analogy to fake tits, that his view of the world is, oh yeah, 
you know, most people will be reduced to something like a proletariat state. You know, there'll be waiters and bartenders and baristas at Starbucks, but they'll be able to come home and get into the fully strapped on virtual reality and have a castle and drive a Lamborghini. And that's how we'll keep the proles down. And I go, dude, man, I think if I were had a guillotine company, I would use that as my ad, right? I'd have rolling guillotines on, mounted on casters that you could push through the street. And that would be my marketing material right there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who's going to win this contest. We're on a knife's edge, as Gandalf warned us. We are not guaranteed to win at all. Uh, maybe that's why I come back to, to myth so often in science fiction, because I think... For, for me, when I was very lost as a, as a younger man, uh, science fiction was one of the things that helped me find a way out of that because the stories are so powerful. So something like The Matrix, what you're being told in The Matrix is quite true. Uh, there's a lot of great symbolism in there about the situation that you kind of find yourself in as a standard human being in our capitalist society. So much of it is interwoven with these uh, control mechanisms to make you a battery and it's very difficult to say this stuff directly like i i do a lot of work as a as a critic and i know that like there's a certain point of if what i'm saying directly literally in criticism broke through a certain point i i get lots and lots of attack from that and at some point the attack would probably become unbearable i guess i've been twitter dogpiled few times in the past but much much on from that whereas myth and storytelling can can work much more powerfully to to get past that interesting now one interesting thing about the matrix as you say it is allegorically very interesting but i am a little put off by the fact that red pills has been hijacked essentially mean become wise to the ways of misogyny or something like that. I go, what the hell? The guys that did, now gals, I guess, that did The Matrix would not be pleased with that use of the concept at all, I do not believe. Yeah, that's a really interesting phenomenon of this. So you got the, there's a number of these, but that's probably the main one so the matrix has been picked up by people like andrew tate i vaguely know who it is not in my world but apparently is the number one biggest influence or at least was where he got slammed of like 14 year old boys right yeah i mean there's other people i could name but if if you name them in this kind of podcast it's, it's like summoning them so i don't want to bring them all to your podcast jim but uh, and there's a lot of these people out there who are selling to these young men who are trapped in video games and porn, basically. The idea that uh, there is this thing like the Matrix and there is this red pill you can take to get out of it, but then they associate it to this very reactionary value set, which is much easier to understand that the problem is, and this has always been a phenomenon, so the problem is like this tiny number of transgender uh, cultural critics who get an incredible amount of attack from these kind of Reddit uh, type communities, 4chan type communities, because uh, this is how difficult the the knife edge that we're on. That even the experience of awakening from the Matrix can be subverted into a kind of money making scam. 
oh man, just look at all the self-help gurus out there and the TikTok influencers. You know, again, they're all trying to scamify what John Verveke, in fact, they're the highest rated shows ever on my podcast. I had him on for 10 hours where we did his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which is a 50-hour video series. We cooked it down to about 10 hours, a very intense audio. I must say, I am impressed as shit that my audience loves those episodes because when I made them, I famously spend 10 hours on average researching each episode that I do. I spent about 30 hours researching each one of those five episodes, and they are extremely deep. And the top two episodes of all my episodes are both from that series, and all five of them are in the top 17. So kudos to the Jim Rutshow audience for having the depth to go with John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. But yes, if the money-on-money machine is what transmutes all values to shit, it can even transmit the idea of awakening from the meaning crisis to shit, unfortunately. Now, games. Let's, let's talk about games a little bit. When I was a really intense gamer from age of 10 to about 22, but they were all tabletop games. They were mostly the Avalon Hill war games, the little square pieces with the military unit symbols on them. And I even developed some. Being a friend of mine, created some. I created one of the first Lord of the Rings Risk variants and printed a few copies and had friends do it. But they were all on tabletops and they were all very social, right? I've dabbled a little bit over the years in computer games, almost not at all on console games. But none of them for me ever had the magic of the tabletop games with, you know, five people around a table, you know, arguing and making fun of each other and what have you. But turning it into a solitary pursuit seems to have been perhaps the thing that allowed it to become this highly addicting thing. And of course, moving from tabletop with very abstract, here's my army is a little square piece with a tank tread on it to actually you know, being five feet away from a tank shooting a flamethrower and you have your anti-tank gun and you shoot the tank and it blows up. Very much more immersive kinds of things than my days of gaming addiction. I was never addicted because it's not that addicting when it's at that level of abstraction. But when it's at this deeper level, it gets the hooks in much deeper. Yeah, well, there's two kinds of game in any really successful game. The classic example of this is the high scoreboard on an arcade machine. Uh, and the realization by the the game companies that you had Space Invaders or whatever the game was, Street Fighter 2 was the one for my generation. And I would go to the arcade to play the game, but actually because I wanted my name on that high scoreboard. So there's the graphically represented game, and then there's all the actual game structures underneath that. And if you look at the games today, it's the game structures underneath, things like Loot Crates in big online battle royale games. And that keys into a number of kind of cognitive biases that people have. You're kind of training people in a Pavlovian response so that they don't know what's going to be in the box and usually it's lower value than what they're paying for it and it's all digital goods anyway. But sometimes it's going to pay out something really big uh, and everything in the game is therefore just a massive addiction engine and this is something that, you know, John Viveki or someone similarly skilled could dig into much more deeply. I'm aware of it on a kind of creator's level. And someone who had to unaddict myself from these games many years ago now, but 
Uh, I had a pretty addictive gaming habit for Counter-Strike at the time, which I played for months, months solidly. Um, and that had all of these game structures built into it as well. But I think a large part of the answer is, is awareness to them. The first step is understanding that uh, these uh, addictive behavior shaping techniques are all being deployed in these games. Yeah, that's interesting. If you're right about the future being a creator's world where people become more and more immersed in the creations of peers, maybe the 1% that's good out of the free space, perhaps it's going to be important that we find some way to help guide people or nudge people or even regulate such that dopamine hijacking is not the principal aim of these things. But unfortunately, even if all you're interested in is fame, you're not going to get paid. You know, if you have something that's very, very dopamine hijacking, you'll have a million users as opposed to the kind of the sweeter, softer or more brutal, but less intentionally dopamine hijacking alternatives. What do you think about that? The ecosystem that favors the exact kinds of exploits, even in a non-commercial world. Yeah, I, I struggle with this as a teacher, for instance, teacher of writing and, and storytelling that in fact, I deliberately, my course is called The Rhetoric of Story because it's the least marketing type title that I could give it. And it is literally what it's about as well. And it has been very successful, actually, which is surprising in some ways. And I do have some structures in there. Like I, I structure around seven foundations of storytelling. So that would be quite a simple communication strategy to make it a list in that way. But that's kind of a bit of a compromise. But in the like the online teaching space, it's the worst teaching which will sell the best in many ways. So in, in the writing space, it's things like how to write 5,000 words a day uh, for your book. Uh, and it just teaches these kind of very routine techniques that an AI can definitely do uh, to kind of crank out prose for your self-publishing books because it appeals to a much lower desire in people that we can just have the outcome so we we always have to remember that it is about who we are as humans as well we're very biased towards simple solutions and uh getting things without putting in the work uh getting the honey at the top of the tree that somebody else has has done the climbing for but once we recognize that then you can actually start to consciously work around it but it's deeply frustrating, I find it, as a teacher, that, there. well, it's also about where you position yourself in relation to the worst player on a field. There's the most virtuous player and the most evil player, and the most virtuous player is doomed to lose. So you have to position yourself somewhere realistically that you can compete with the spectrum of bad players who are out there as well. In our game B theory, we call that the multipolar trap, where the example I like to use is, let's imagine we're in the soft drink business in 1978, and we all sell soft drinks with cane sugar in them. And again, we're going to hypothesize that high fructose corn syrup is worse for you. The scientific evidence isn't clear, but let's assume that it is. Archer Daniel Midlands Corporation has a chemical engineering breakthrough, and they can now manufacture high fructose corn syrup for a third the price of cane sugar. But nobody switches in the soft drink world. They've all been cane sugar traditionalists. But one guy does switch. He's been taken over by private equity, let's say, and is nothing but about the bottom line. 
And so he switches out. His costs, sugar being by far the number one ingredient, drop by half. He can now outcompete and have higher profit margin or lower price and gain market share against everybody else. And they're all forced to respond with the same action. So even though they didn't really want to, they're forced to by one bad actor. And you see that again and again and again. That fits exactly your case. If all were virtuous teachers of writing, then they could all be virtuous teachers of writing. But if that is not an evolutionary stable strategy, as we say in evolutionary theory, if an invader comes into your space with schlock, write 5,000 words a day and write a bestseller, or you know, here are the five rules for all writing. You know, I've seen all that crap, as you have, no doubt, on online ads. And that actually outcompetes virtuous, rhetorically founded theories of writing, then you have a problem. And so... One of the things we struggle with in the Game B world is what are the principles by which a commons can expel invaders and not tolerate the invaders rather than force all the players in any given activity to respond by becoming like the worst players in the category? And I will say we do not yet have an answer, but we have identified it as one of the key problems for building the world that comes after the one we're living in. Maybe Tolkien understood some of this on the most intuitive level because something that he's talking about in lord of the rings is the way that evil eats itself over time it consumes itself and you see this like in hollywood at the moment as it has become much more of a corporate enterprise i think the idea of independent filmmakers competing in like the 1970s when Hollywood was at its peak and it, it was making uh, amazing films alongside lots of trash as well, what would have been difficult. But now what comes out of Hollywood is so terrible that there's space for the independent creators to move through and make something uh, new. So I suspect that we have this cycle between the, uh, the worst players on the field who at some point will come to dominate and then they end up eating themselves because their their audience has opted out and space emerges for new things to, to crop up around them. I doubt we can ever end the cycle and just have the good stuff, though. Anyone who puts out a utopian anything, be highly suspicious. It ends up as Pol Pot every time, right? Complexity will tell us that we'll never get full answers to anything. It's always an unfolding to the next level. So I think you're kind of interesting there. Let's wrap up with one thing I would love to get your thoughts on. As you no doubt could infer from our discussion, I at least used to be a very heavy science fiction reader. In fact, that's what I mostly read. There was a time when I read, I believe, every science fiction book that was published in hardcover and hence showed up at our public library. And then later, when I had my paper route and a little bit of money, I discovered used bookstores where you could buy copies of Analog for a nickel and you could buy pulp science fiction books for a dime. And I would you know, buy them by the stack and read them. But over time, my reading of science fiction has gone down to you know maybe one or two or three a year. The most recent one I read that I was quite impressed with, in fact, I had him on my podcast quite recently, was Daniel Suarez's recent ones. Critical Mass and Delta V, they're two linked stories about the early days of mankind moving into space, and they were very, very good. In fact, they fit into the category, we unfortunately didn't have time to dig into this, what you called a systems novel, where he envisions 
a whole new way that the economy might work and the politics might work, and it's very innovative. But anyway, that aside, Daniel Suarez, his two books I really like. What would you recommend as current science fiction that's of the highest quality? I'm going to put the, put the critic on the spot and have him come up with some of his what he thinks are really good sci-fi that are, say, within the last 12 months or so. Well, I'm not reading a lot of new science fiction. Oh, you're arguing about the old stuff, right? <laughs> uh, I've gone back to a lot of old stuff, like reading the whole Dune sequence to talk about systems theory novels, which that, I think that defines systems theory science fiction. That's why it's so influential. I'll give you one, okay. which I think will appeal to, to your audience, which is by Quantum, Q-N-T-M, who does have a real name, but he chooses to publish pseudonymously. And the book is called There Is No Anti-Memetics Division. Oh, I read that. It's pretty whack. <laughs> it's way out there stylistically, but it was curious and interesting. I don't think I finished it, actually, now I'll confess. I'm, I'm about a 75% finisher of books that I started, but that was one I did not finish because the style was just too whack. Yeah, it has a kind of uh, episodic style that might not be for everybody who reads it, but I think some of the ideas in there are probably ideas that will become quite mainstream in science fiction. I love the core concept, actually, you know, the core theme. And once I got the theme, I said, all right, I'm done. So let's instead, let's spend our last five minutes talking about the idea of systems. Uh, what did you call them? Systems novels. I think it was quite a long time ago I wrote that. Why don't you lay out that idea and maybe give some examples and why you think it's an important formalism? Well, you have, you have a point in philosophy where a lot of philosophers, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely an armchair philosopher, so I speak inexpertly here, but I think Heidegger was one of these who came to a point in his thinking about philosophy that he really decided it, it could only really happen through art, that philosophy just kind of went round in these linguistic cycles otherwise. Uh, and he wrote a lot of poetry at that point. And I think a lot about actually the embodiment of philosophy in story gives you science fiction, I think you could almost call science fiction philosophy fiction in a way. So in something like Dune, although there's definitely science and scientific extrapolation in there, I think it's more about kind of thinking about ecology and the systems, uh, how systems, complex systems of those kinds uh, are going to shape and evolve over time, how those are tied into human evolution and Herbert spends a hell of a lot of time just having his characters sitting around thinking about the future of humanity, uh, the kind of arc of the planet Arrakis becoming the water world and then going back to the desert world again. And all of these, I think, are deep philosophical concepts and system thinkers' concepts. But I think what happens in terms of putting those in fiction actually takes you a step beyond like systems thinking and systems theory because they have to become embodied whatever systems you're thinking of have to be embodied in people and then seen through the eyes of characters and then made into a story that is believable and immersive for the readers which takes you that leap beyond where systems very so often struggles with just proliferating systems because you can identify like an infinite number of systems in the world for any 
finite thing you might want to look at. But the test of the system is how it comes back to the human scale. And if you can place it into a story, which then gives you a work of science fiction, I think, that is actually an intellectual test for it. Does that make sense, Jim? Yeah, it does. One I read last year, which I was pretty taken with, was Neil Stevenson's Termination Shock. Again, it was really good story and some interesting and quirky characters, but it was also a fairly good explication of geoengineering and climate change and coupling between the two and you know what could really go badly wrong with climate change what are some of the risks and some of the benefits of geoengineering so it was a mixture of serious thinking about systems and a good fun story mm. i think it's his trilogy the systems of the world trilogy first one is quicksilver and it's also related to cryptonomicon Oh, I hated those. Oh, dear, did I hate those. You hated them. Yes. In fact, (laughs) I refer to them as the Broke Cycle, B-R-O-K-E. He calls them the Baroque Cycle. What did you hate about them? Everything, particularly the writing style and the fact that the history is all totally and grossly falsified. I happen to know a lot about that era of Boyle and Newton and all that stuff, and it's like, And it's funny, I've read every book he's written, and I've enjoyed them all, except for those three. It's one of the very few cases, I think it was the second one, you hear people say they threw a book against the wall. Well, about halfway through, I literally took this gigantic tome, and they're all huge and thick. This was in hardcover, and I threw it against the wall, and it actually put a dent in the sheetrock. So anyway, but I know other people think they're his best work. So, you know, taste is individual. (laughs) I won't judge them on quality there. I think as systems novels, they're very interesting. But I, I email interviewed Neil Stevenson some years ago, and I would send him a question, quite a long question, like half a par- like a paragraph, half a page of email or something. And I would get an email back from him that was three thousand words long, about seven minutes later, in answer to the question. So I think because uh, he's very prolific, I think Neil Stevenson can write at the speed that he thinks. Um, Since then, when I've read his novels, I can tell the sections where he's writing fiction. And he's a very skilled fiction writer. And then there are other sections where he just switches over into, this is just Neil Stevenson brain dumping onto the page. Yeah, even in Termination Shock, there's some of that where he you know, goes into a deep dive into explaining something. And he does it really well. I mean, he is a very talented wordsmith. And I've enjoyed all of his books with that, with the exception of the broke cycle. But I know other people think those are their favorites, right? So to each his own. All righty. Well, I think this has been a right, interesting conversation with Damian Walter. Thanks for coming on the Jim Rutt Show. Thanks for inviting me, Jim. Yeah, it was really a lot of fun. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.